Hey folks, and tonight's episode is brought to you by YesPleaseVintage.com. If you're in the States and a fan of vintage and upcycled housewares and clothing, give YesPleaseVintage.com a check for clothing, jewelry, homeware, and some really awesome finds. So go check them out now at YesPleaseVintage.com. And currently, if you spend over $60, you get free shipping on all orders. Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the Asian Cinema Phone Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, the professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, everybody. Tonight, we look at the rather classy tale of octopi, dramatic readings, lesbianism, and many other things, as we check out Park Chan Wook's The Handmaiden, based on the novel Fingersmith as he transfers the novel to 1930s Korea. Uh, but before that, we obviously tend to ask what you've been watching, and Stephen, since the last episode, what, if anything, has been holding your interest? So, you know, quite often on these things, um, the sort of behind-the-scenes behind view is that sometimes, you know, we try and record every couple of weeks, and but we have a couple of different shows, and sometimes life gets in the way, and so some, some episodes, you know, we're recording quite close together, and I say, oh, I haven't watched anything. For, for a, just by random nature, we haven't recorded this show for a month, so I've actually got things to watch. <laughs> I've got the whole of this month to tell you what I've been watching. So, to start with, um, I saw um, Robotrix, which might advertise itself somewhat as a Hong Kong ripoff of the Terminator stroke. <laughs> Um, oh, yeah, stroke indeed. Terminator Stroke, um, Robocop, but it kind of isn't really. I think it's got more in common with some other films from the like some what's that Jean Claude Van Damme one where he's a cyborg? Is it even called Cyborg? Cyborg, it yeah, it's called Cyborg. Yeah. The Albert Purim <laughs> movie. That. Say again, the Albert Purim movie, yeah, that's Cyborg, mm. unless you talk about yeah. Universal Soldier, which I guess is, yeah, but basically, it's a uh, it's an Amy Yip movie where Amy Yip is a side character. What <laughs> um, a surprise. It's, yeah, it's it's just like this 90s Hong Kong sci-fi cop thriller, um, which has got just all these nutty elements in that just makes Hong Kong cinema of that age glorious. You have to understand there's a lot of misogyny and there's a lot of a lot of misogyny and it's not just about bare breasts being on display occasionally it's about attitudes to prostitution and such like it is very very funny but potentially for the wrong reasons it's kind of entertaining it doesn't make a jot of sense but you don't get many science fictiony movies from asia we've talked about this before you know outside of um anime um it's on a lovely set I think from Arrow, I can't remember if it's Arrow 88 film. I think it might be 88 films actually. It doesn't matter. It's it just came in this wonderful box set with all these fantastic extras and you just think, well, have they done that for this film? <laughs> but it's it's obviously our Amy Yip fans, isn't it? But no, it's it's a lot of fun. But just remember 1991 Hong Kong isn't the place for wokeness and it isn't no, that that even a it isn't necessarily the place for Treating women with respect, but 
if you can just understand the context, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, right, what did I watch next? Then I went back to Michelle Brothers' um, box set from Arrow. But as I realised you were going forwards through it, I thought I'll go backwards. And I went to Dirty Ho, which is the last film, which sounds like... <laughs> Sounds like a sequel to Robotrix, but it isn't. <laughs> because Ho is the surname of one of the characters in the film, or the family name of one of the characters in the film. So this is by... Um, I, I, hard to explain. It's like a martial arts comedy with two really good leading performances with... Kind of an interesting story, and it's really kind of entertaining, except the pacing is all over the place. Okay. Um, the, 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 like, for example, the, the opening, um, the, 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 the opening, not scenes, but the open titles are just like, the only thing it reminds me of, do you, do you, do you remember the, the British 60s, 70s TV show, The Avengers? I'm sure you, yeah, John Steele yeah, and all Steel that. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, um, so thingy from Abfab, Emma Peel. Oh, well, that's so, oh well, yeah, yeah. So, so yes, you've just conf- you mixed load of things. Up. Anyway, never mind. So, <laughs> yes, the, the, the Avengers, you mix the new Avengers, the Avengers and the Avengers up there. So Joanna Lumley was the new Avengers, Emma Peel, Diana Rigg, or who was Diana Rigg, and and various others. So, so the opening credits of the Avengers sort of matured over time, but they got quite surreal, and that's what the opening of Dirty Ho is. They're sort of they sort of martial arts moments with the two lead characters doing weird things like being shot at by arrows but but from about one foot away and and it's just weird but when it actually gets going apart from the fact it just keeps repeating the same thing i.e um gordon Liu's character is actually one of the potential heirs to the he's, he's one of the emperor's sons and the other fella dirty ho i can't remember who plays him but but Ho's character is utterly ignorant of this and is having a, you know, just misses the fact that Gordon Liu's being, they're trying to assassinate him and they just repeat it again and again. It is hugely entertaining. <laughs> that was a long way round to say it's not going to be the best film on that box set, but it is, it's got something about it which makes it hugely entertaining. Um, the name's a bit unfortunate. It's one of the ones which has got the soundtrack CD on that box set as well, which is a bit odd. But yeah, as, oh, and, and the ending is just like you literally get to the bit where everything's going to be revealed, and then it just ends on a gag, literally, like before the film's concluded. But there's tons wrong with it, mate. But at the same time, it's kind of hugely entertaining, and I see why it's on the box set. Have you? You haven't seen it. I'm taking it. No, I've not seen Dirty Ho. I've been like yourself. I've been working my way through the Shaw Brothers um, Volume One box set, and obviously my favourite on there at the moment, I would say, is obviously Mighty Peking Man, which I think is a yeah. great addition on there. I've actually got another film, uh, one of the, the other titles in that box set that I've actually watched this week. Okay. Um, because I actually watched uh, Challenge of the Masters. All right. Yeah. Uh, which I have to say is really good. Because I was a little disappointed because in the last episode we talked about um, the Five Deadly Venoms mm. and how it's this seminal like kung fu movie, but I just I just couldn't get into it at all. And obviously, when you look at Challenge of the Masters, which is directed by Lu Chi Lang, um, who would do like you know 
basically Chambers of Shaolin, um, and did like a whole bunch of movies with uh, with Gordon Liu. I mean, he did eight di- eight uh, Diagram Pole Fighter, the awesome Tiger on the Beat. Um, he was like one of the main players of like the Shaw Brothers legacy, really. So much so that he was given more artistic freedom than a lot of the other directors were. And with Challenge of the Masters, it was sort of like his first time that he worked with Gordon Liu. Um, and he not only like directs it and produces it, he also plays this sort of like um, kind of like Ratman hobo who gets hired by one of the rival kung fu schools um who um has got a deadly kick that he uses to um kill Gordon Liu's friend and basically it's about Gordon Liu who is this sort of like headstrong fighter whose father refuses to let him learn martial arts and he basically he uh sneaks his way into the annual firecracker tournament which is kind of like the do you remember once upon a time in china part three where they got the lion head competition yeah and it's just basically an excuse for each other for all the different teams just to have a big scrap yeah pretty much the same thing with uh the firecracker factor they launch all these firecrackers in the air apparently they got to like catch them or something but it just basically turns into like this mass rugby style brawl where despite the rules initially saying saying like there's like no weapons, no fighting. Everyone's got weapons. Everybody's fighting with this thing. So Gordon Liu goes off, and he finally, having uh, been finally been given permission by his father to go and do his martial arts training, and of course uh, we get some really cool sort of train sequences. And he returns, and you think, oh, he's gonna have a showdown with uh, old Ratman here, and yeah, he defeats him, and he goes back to face like the rival Kung Fu school, and just defeats them by being like an overwhelmingly good person like he'll get into a brawl and his by showing them compassion is like the killer move here he's just overly nice to people and this is he's not like he's just like returns he's just like (laughs) kicking seven shades out of everyone left right and center no he like is places super honorableness and his honorableness like humbles everyone he encounters and this is how he how he wins now I see. I, I, I can't. <laughs> that was like one of those um, <coughs> superpowers from like Scott Pilgrim or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's fun as well because you've got the scene where Gunlu's like learning to use the Shaolin pole, and yeah, he started off and he's got to like trace it around these bowls and stuff, and his like kung fu master like comes out every time he keeps breaking. He's like, "You keep breaking all my bowls," and he has to like keep going smaller so he starts off with like, like a bowl and he goes like down to a teacup and then a saucer and. He has to constantly keep tracing in it round, like, uh, to make that noise that, you know, when you put your finger around uh, wine glasses to make. Yeah. Oh, That's yeah, basically yeah. what he's doing, like but the, with like a Shaolin the... pole. I see. So yes. Resonance. But it's a, really, it's a really good one. There's some fantastic training sequences in there. Some really good fights. And I have to say, it was like, it was one of those films which I was surprised at that more people, especially, aren't talking about this set. Um,. So yeah, I would definitely recommend checking that one out. Okay, I've yep, got you two more. So 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 a swap. Okay, so my film of the month was a DVD I'd ordered from Yes Asia a couple of years ago, maybe longer. Uh, I'd forgotten I had. So I've already spoken a lot about um, Edmund Pang Ho Chung and his films like the Love and the Puff films and. 
various others. I'm a huge fan, and to be, and you know, you all know Vulgaria. Um, you know, he 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 sort of alternates these days between sort of I don't know, sort of lowbrow Cantonese comedies, and he's breaking it you know he's stretching himself and doing some more more measured dramas but he's got he is for me the premier hong kong filmmaker he's flirted with china and things like love the third love and a puff film you know has a chinese character in it and or was that the second one i can't it doesn't matter you know he's done everything that hong kong directors have to do but he is still capable of making the old favorite something which i haven't watched for ages and literally, I watched this on Chinese New Year. It's sort of one of these Lunar New Year comedies where you've got a kind of plot of sorts, but it's really ex- an excuse for some kind of sort of star-laden knockabout, lots of cameo appearances. You know the kind of film. And and, and in the 90s and the aughts, there were lots of these, the all, All's Well That Ends Well films, things like that. Um, Stephen Chow loves a lunar comedy but this this was from Edmund um, Pang um, it's called Misbehaviour and but it's missed with two s's but one word and it's very confusing because I have a Korean film called Misbehaviour with one s and another film called Miss Space Behaviour <laughs> so <laughs> it's quite hard but yes I'd bought this ages ago forgotten about it working away you know along with watching loads of bloody 90s rom-coms I'm also watching trying to get that 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 pile down and this was an absolute treat um the story basically is there's a bunch of friends who are never really clear how they all know each other but they they, they're connected via whatsapp but there's been a a schism and 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 they've all kind of fallen out with each other but when one of them (laughs) is going to lose her job because she's accidentally used um, listen, she's got a job. She works for Isabella Leong, and Isabella Leong has just come back to work after maternity leave. So obviously she's over fighting the whole glass ceiling thing. But she's produced some breast milk and kept it in the fridge, but in a milk bottle. And the the, the friend has accidentally put it into the latte of one of the things. So what she's got to do is replace her boss's breast milk, which brings the gang back together. They have a load of wacky experiences across Hong Kong um, where they're trying to get some breast milk to replace it with. Don't worry about any of that. But it's great. There's some really great um, general performances um, by some people who are in Pang's normal world. So you remember Dada Chen, for example, who's in Bulgaria. Um, Gigi Lung is in it, who's a huge star like 10, 15 years ago and still looks the same age in June Lam. And then there's sort of cameos. Um, our old friend Lam Suet, who appears in every film. Um, Patrick Say. Um, Miriam Young has a glorious little um, cameo as well. Uh, there's somebody else as well, but I can't remember. There's, just, there's a lot of people. There are also a lot of people. I have no fucking idea who they are because apparently they're local social media celebs hmm. who... I won't know who they are, but it's it's funny. It's a bit disgusting at times. It's a bit cheeky. It's nonsense, right? It is not his best work, but I. It was just a treat because I hadn't. I'd forgotten he'd even made this film, and it was the first time. And and just 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 to see it without any. There's clearly no mainland influence on it. 
it's it's got some LGBT stuff going on in there, which you know you just wouldn't get if the, if it was mainland money involved. So I'd really recommend it if you can dig out a copy. Um, just just understand it's a lunar New Year comedy. You're not meant to take it too seriously. And the final film is one that I watched on Mubai that I tried to watch a few months ago and the subtitles just didn't work. But then the message came up saying this film's about to leave Mubai and um, and <coughs> I thought I'll give it one more go and it all worked. Um, so it's called Idol, I-D-O-L, which makes it the hardest film to search for on the internet in the world. It's a political thriller um, starring two of the um, biggest stars of the Korean wave male actors, um, Han Suk-kyu and I think his name's Song Gyeonggu, but they were in all the sort of early films in these, day, in these days. Long story short, there is a politician who um, is basically on the cusp of, of big, big things. And one night he's asked to come home and it turns out that his son has run over somebody in, in a hit and run. But for some reason has put the body in the boot of his car and driven it home. Um, then, <laughs> which is a stupid thing to do, everybody. Um, he then puts the body back the, and, and, and basically fesses up and says, my son did this hit and run. And, he, and actually even though this terrible thing has happened and he kind of throws his son under the bus, if you excuse the pun, he becomes even more popular. However, the father of the boy that, that has been killed, the young man that's been killed, who happened to be, um, I think he's, um, we never meet him, but I think the suggestion is he's sort of got some issues, um, mostly because the opening, is, you know, he's like developmentally challenged, because mostly because the father of this boy in the, in the opening scene, whilst we're meeting our councilman, he's narrating it and basically talking about the fact that he's had to masturbate his son manually because his son doesn't know what to do and it stops him being angry. You know, and, and what it is, it's a bit of a weird thing to open with, but what it shows you is this, this guy, he might, he's got bleached hair and he looks like a bit of a rogue, but actually he's a really, really caring father. And what he has... What, what, what he brings to the party is firstly he's obviously upset his son's been killed but then he says well what about his wife she was with him so now this wife has gone missing who happens to be a Chinese immigrant so we've got this story about this this political drama about honesty and lies but it's also got this extra component about the you know that underground as, as with many countries a lot of Chinese people come in illegally to do the shitty jobs and in this case, she's a prostitute. But, you know, lots of things happen. Um, and a fantastic performance by the girl who does that. It's very, very confusing. It is very, very dense. Um, I really liked it. But every review I've read of it basically says variations on it was a bit confusing. We didn't really know what was going on. I don't think it's that bad. You know, it's not It's not obtuse. It's just really packed in. Um but it's very similar to another film that came out a couple of years ago called The Truth Beneath, um, which, yeah, I really liked as well. Um, that, was a, that was a South Korean film that I think tonight's director, Pang Chul-wook, 
Park Chan-wook actually executively produced. Anyway, if you like political thrillers and you're willing to put the time in and and and, and just deal with the fact you might not understand some of the shit that's going down. There is a review here on Netbox. Someone says, unfortunately, I have absolutely no idea what happened. Um, I think it's not as bad as that, but it's complicated. But yeah, I'd really recommend it. Unfortunately, I think it's just left Mumbai. And to search for it under the name Idol, I-D-O-L, will be the hardest thing you've ever done. So who knows? But yes, I really enjoyed it. And if we can, um, if we can, if someone can pick it up and finds it, give it a go. That's me. That's my four. Fantastic. Um, for myself, I mean, we obviously talked about Challenge of the Masters, which I watched. Um, for some bizarre reason, I decided to watch every single one of the Resident Evil animes. Um, starting off with Resident Evil Degeneration from 2008. Um, the first two of these, they were directed by a Makoto Kimiya, who's probably best known for his work as a visual effects supervisor. He's done stuff for like Kingdom, um, and he also did like um, Bleach. He's done quite a few bits and pieces. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if you if you watched any of these animated Resident Evil movies at all. No, I haven't, and I, I yeah. have a question. So, are these coming from? Those, I'm not going to pass judgment. The sort of the American Resident Evil films, or are they coming from like the Biohazard Japanese um, computer games, which obviously got repackaged as Res? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I'm talking about Resident Evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had a sudden, had a sudden brain fart. Am I talking about the wrong thing? So are they sort of related to? I'll call it Biohazard because obviously these are these. (laughs) Yeah, you've got an Asian director there. Um. Or are they connected to the weird? Oh, these films? are all tied into the the films. They all sort of like take place between the different games, right? So they're in the so they're in, they're the, in the game canon. They're in yeah. the game canon. Okay, so brilliant. Confused gotcha. that there, so they're related to the films. All oh, right, you sorry. did say yes. that, but it doesn't matter. Now, now you've said that. So they're basically in between. The, so of the of the early, I assume, sort of the earlier Resident Evils, sort of one to six. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The one to six. first one takes place yeah. between four and five, and then later ones are between uh, five and six. And so they're all. When you watch the first one, it's sort of like it's kind of bizarre because it feels like you're watching just like. Is it kind of like playing Yakuza? You know, where it's just like one big cutscene and you wait for them someone to hand you the controller? Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. pretty much the experience of watching Degeneration. It's um, got some really, it's got some interesting set pieces. Like there's a part where Leon is meeting um, uh, Claire at the, uh, the airport and they have a, like a zombie outbreak. Which I thought was like kind of cool. That's something new. And then at the same time, there's a mm. zombie outbreak on a plane, which then crashes into the terminal. And it's like, oh, even better. You know, we can't do this in mm. the film. So had shades of um, oh, Nightmare City to it because that has uh, the yep. zombies pouring out of the the plane at the start of it. And mm. uh, yeah, so that was kind of cool. But then it sort of like just descends into. Basically, like I say, it just feels like you're watching one big cut cut scene, especially as the ending is just basically uh, this character who's seeking revenge on uh, for the cover up of uh, the Raccoon City, so Resident Evil Two, because it was all covered up. So he's seeking revenge, and he basically turns into like a zombie Hulk. 
and that's and it's got some really fun sort of set pieces in there but story-wise it's just a bit of a drag but um oh, that's a it didn't stop him coming back for biohazard damnation okay <laughs> um i mean this is this is a really popular franchise right so it's not a yeah. surprise that they just keep they can just keep yeah netflix for some reason the first one they have only in the japanese so it appears with biohazard in the title even though it says resident evil on like it and it's bizarre because they released a dub version but netflix apparently don't have it but uh they have all the dubs for the other ones so damnation it was released in 2012 and basically takes place in this uh post-soviet um country which is um there's like rumors of them using bioweapons uh in them and basically it's uh sees leon heading out to the eastern block to go and fight zombies where there's a civil war breaking out and you've got the evil president who's been running her own secret bioweapons program and at the same time you've got this ex-teacher turned resistance fighter who has been infected with um la plaga which is the virus from resident evil 4 and uh, basically he means he can control lesser zombies so he has an army of lickers so we get some great scenes of uh, his army of lickers taking on a bunch of tyrants but uh, this one's actually a step up from uh, the previous one which uh, was kind of a relief and there's some fun action sequences there including a battle with a bunch of tyrants which like these big Frankenstein type monsters if you're not familiar with the games where they bring in like a tank and a truck and they exploding petrol container it's like it's like a whole michael bay sort of setup they have and again it's doing what you can do with the films because it's an animation you've got a lot more freedom but um yeah if you have been putting off i would recommend starting with damnation it's a real sort of step up there and then after that i decided you know we're on a bit of a roll here let's watch biohazard vendetta from 2017 uh, which this time sees Chris Redfield return finally. I don't know why Chris Redfield is never in anything or why we always go with Leon. I never understood the appeal of Leon at all. Um, yeah, or Claire. Quite often Claire, isn't but it? She, she did but one, didn't she? I, I can't... I, I just... I can't remember. I do. I played the original yeah. games back in the day, like in PlayStation One, PlayStation Two times. So, one, two, and three. I kind of missed four, five, and six, and I own seven. And I'm currently boomerang rentaling eight village. Okay. Yeah. Because oh, no, no, no sponsorships, but you know that you you got me into the boomerang rentals thing, and I'm too scared to play them. Right. Hey, <laughs> you're not playing Alien Isolation. <laughs> I would never play that. I'm, I'm not even scared of film. So, so Seven obviously is. I've got the PlayStation VR, which is why I bought it. Thought well, that would be a good thing to play on VR, and then realised, even even on a standard PlayStation Four, VR is way more immersive than you might think. And I think I can't stand the thought of that. But they've kind of reset it, haven't they? In five, in seven, and eight, that's where I was going to with this. Yeah, um, and I've lost track. I've lost track of who is who and who's in what. Frankly, it is a bit um, confusing. One, two, three, four. Five, I mean, I was six. I was watching Vendetta here, and uh, as I said, we obviously have Chris Redfield comes back, Leon's in it. We also have Rebecca, who's like from the first game. Oh god! Um, and she's now Professor Rebecca. 
And right. uh, at the same time, you've got the this weapons dealer who is basically now trading in bioweapons because he got a bit pissed at the American government because they decided to uh, bomb his wedding. So he's decided to uh, take revenge on, on the American government by launching a bioweapons attack. Um, and this one's got a really great opening. It's got this really creepy zombie child and... There's just lots of really fun things here. It's absolutely as mad as a box of frogs when it comes to the action. So if you want to see Leon riding a motorcycle and you want to see John Woo style gunplay, then this film certainly delivers on those counts. He also has a villain whose big plan is to kidnap Rebecca because she looks identical to his wife and then to graft the arm of his dead wife onto her body. Um, what will that Well, it's him? apparently going to bring... <laughs> bring her back in some form i have no idea where it's going but uh, uh yeah I've, I've got to say i'm a bit i so those those original biohazard games mm. right the, the resident evil games certainly the first couple in that sense of that survival yes. horror thing you know they were the, the vanguard of that survival horror movement oh no you know there are the, certainly other games oh yeah you had like dino like, crisis and parasite eve and yeah, and, and then in Japan you have the, the one with the camera. Is it called Final Frame? There's a whole yeah. series of them. You know, it, there's there's a lot of them. But then at some point the story's got more science fiction-y and there's a whole umbrella. You know, whilst it's kind of there, the Umbrella Corporation in the first couple of games, it and, and it does lead to something in the end, it then just gets more and more and more ridiculous and insidious and I start stop caring because it was less about you know the what what's the one set oh, in that's africa Evil five which is which is more like um it's just more like a call of duty game than a resident evil game yeah and and of course it's not helped that call of duty then have its whole zombie subgenre as well and you just but you know i like to you know that moment in but in resident evil the first resident evil game where the dogs come through very yeah. early on in the game still makes you shit your pants today <laughs> forget about the tank controls forget about the the, the ropey playstation one era mm. graphics that's a moment of horror that a film would be proud of right it's you know it, i know it's just a jump scare but it, it's just got they just had all this atmosphere and i think somewhere along the line they lost it and they tried to get it back with seven um and i had no idea there were these connecting are they all like put out via yeah yeah it's uh you know? it's capcom who puts all these out and they as i said they release them every couple of years and they actually get better right. as they go on didn't they get george romero to do the trailer for the original resident evil or maybe resident evil 2 i can't remember i'm sure did the trailer for, i you know, think Cap he did the trailer for resident evil 2 because he was attached to do the original resident evil film mm. and then it got passed to paul w sanson who sort of took the ball and ran with it and uh, met his future wife, Mila um, Jovovich, mm. and turned her into a horror icon. Indeed. Um, I'm not really a big fan of those films, but they're, they're just they're just in an alternate universe to me. But that's fine. I know I know people really like them, and they keep making them. Although the re recent Resident Evil film is more like Resident Evil 1 reboot, isn't it? Um, welcome to Raccoon City. But yeah, no, yeah. Or is it more like Resident Evil 2? I don't know. doesn't matter. It, it, it's, it's a reset yeah. anyway. And, and I'll never watch it. But I do kind of like how Capcom have really tried to franchise this in a multimedia sense. 
we, and, and I think they always have. And it really builds up. I mean, at the end of the day, the games are just first-person shooters, but <laughs> with zombies. But they've they've built this whole world around it far more successfully than say they did with um, Street Fighter. Um, I see. I know that Konami, if they even exist anymore, try and do it with Castlevania, and there's various others. But you know, comic book, not comic book, video game movies on the whole have a bad rep. But I do think Capcom are. Then it sounds like they're trying to do something interesting, even though it doesn't sound like you're totally enamored. Well, by this is movies. the thing. The first one I was like, because this thing we did the whole coverage of all these silver on movies and tea. Because uh, mm. we originally back in the early days of of uh, movies and tea, we did every single Resident Evil movie because we did Paul W. Sansom for our first season. Mm. We take over there. We yeah. take a director and we go through the filmography. And Paul W. Sansom was our first director. We did. And I was very surprised, as I said, just over the course of that season, just like, you know, the depth of his, his work. Because we, we tend to lose focus because of the amount of Resident Evil movies he directed, but he's a very interesting director. And it felt like, you know, what would be a fun thing to do? Let's watch all the animated ones. And you watch the first one, then you realise that you subjected your co-host to like another four of these. And you feel so mm. bad. But frankly, they, they actually get better as they go on. Yeah, and then good. that brings us to uh, Netflix's miniseries, uh, Resident Evil Infinite Darkness. Now, have you ever like watched 24 and thought, I would really like this if it was for half an hour episodes and had zombies in? Because that's... Well, I but, well I haven't, but now I'm thinking I would. Because that's basically <laughs> what we get with Infinite Darkness. Um, right. Leon and uh, Clara sent to investigate this conspiracy. Um, at the same time, the White House is attacked by a zombie outbreak, and is it all part of a larger political plot? And we also get elements of Black Hawk Down in there, because when you when you, when you watch it, you're like, "That's just Black Hawk Down," <laughs> <laughs> but, but but with yeah, zombies. Yeah, uh, zombies. Basically, you've got this uh, this team called the Mad Dogs, and uh, they're evacuating over this this city when one of the other black horse gets shot down and they launch this rescue mission with their leader coming out being hailed as his hero at the same time several years later all his team have like basically committed suicide and he's like the only one left which plays into a large conspiracy here but there's this great scene where the pilot the um crew of this helicopter is shot down they've all been like dragged away by the uh the local rebels and they've got them strung up and then they turn into zombies and start massacring them all but um, it's a really fun miniseries. It says it's on Netflix, like all these movies, so you can go check it out. And I think <coughs> it's an- animated, animated again. again yeah. uh, this is from yeah. the same director of uh, Assassination Classroom. Okay, yeah. Vern's, one of Vern's favourite films. Oh, no, 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 that's something Assassination Yes, Assassination is. Um, yes, Assassination Classroom is the one with the smiley-headed yes, the alien. That, right? uh, they have the class yeah. have to kill him. I've never seen the second one of that. Okay. The first one yeah, was really good. Yeah, he directed both of those. Cool. Yeah. No. Real. Real. And that's a. That's an. And that's a manga adaptation. Yeah. 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 But yeah, the first. The first one I really enjoyed. But I've never got around to watching the. the I the second still one. need when to those, watch it. So. It's that time. It's from that period where loads of Japanese films were in two parts because they saw what Harry Potter did and thought, "Oh, we can." Have it's a bit like definite all and over again, you, isn't it? Yeah, but then you had the one that's that 
Takashi Miike ones. It's yeah. God's Will, where they never got around to making the second part. <laughs> and then I don't see as much of it anymore. But Parasite, that was another Not Parasite. Yeah, yeah, I know the one you mean. So. Bomb, but yeah. There was, there was just a whole bunch of Japanese films that came out. Sorry, I'm interrupting. No, that's fine. That's fine. Um, um, as I said, uh, this is actually a Netflix release. So, um, you know, go check it out. Because I think a lot of people sort of ignored it. And Netflix and moment are working on their live action Resident Evil series. Which is out right. at some point this year. But, um, okay, yeah, I mean, this one's fun. It's As I say, it's got that 24 sort of vibe. You know, they've got the, the Frello elements there. And at the same time, you've got, obviously, the Resident Evil elements there. There's a scene with a horde of zombie rats, which is probably not one of the most stupidest things to be turned into a zombie when we look at the history of this game. I mean, this is a game that's featured, like, zombie hyenas and an elephant and giant spiders and a zombie shark. So, I'm trying to think of like animals that they haven't turned into zombies at this point. Are you are you are you are you a comic book fan at all? I do. I dabble. Okay, so there was a a very popular series, DC Comics, written by um, Irish writer Garth Ennis, who I think is is, is probably you know if you switch into film, he he wrote the sort of definitive version of the Punisher, which is in the in, in some of the films and very much what the Netflix version of Punch is based on. Anyway, he wrote this series called Hitman, which was uh, basically sort of a comedy superhero thing. So it was in the in the DC universe and the lead character was a hitman. But then an event happened. Loads of people got superpowers and he got the... I think he's got like X-ray eyes or something. His superpower is not really important. But he's got a load of useless people around him there's one called dog welder whose superpower is being able to weld dogs <laughs> <laughs> but the point i'm going at there's there's a two-part story called something like nightmare at the zoo or the aquarium and basically a whole zoo's worth of animals get zombified and they spend the night buying it and i wish i wish i i mean hitman has got so much in it that you could not and tip in typical Garth Ennis, he's also he's 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 having a critique of superheroes. Um, did Garth Ennis write the boys? Yes, he did. I think he did. That's yeah. So it's before the boys. It is basically, I think, in a way, you look at the lead character in Hitman, you can very much see Butcher in it. Yeah, it, it's 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 a proto the boys thing. So it's got that kind of wackiness that you get in the boys and the gross out humor, but. I just remember, I think, I'm sure it's called Nightmare at the Gotham Aquarium or Nightmare at the Gotham Zoo. I can't remember. But yeah, if you want to see zombified animals and having the um, shot to death and stuff, <laughs> go for it. That's a really random place to go. But um, it's obviously the all zombie, all zombie show tonight. <laughs> I, just, I just love zombie stuff that does interesting and different things. It is hard to find like, interest in zombies. <coughs> movies at the moment though is it because it's mm. like such a done to death genre it is although i'm just going to bring up one more film it's not asian and i've kind of mentioned it before but i watched it properly this month um so have you heard of the night eats the world which is ostensibly a french film but it's all in okay. english um if you have seen um, the Korean film, which was very popular on Netflix during lockdown, um, Hashtag Alive, or Sarandita, which tells the story of a, a young man who's stuck in a high-rise flat while the zombie apocalypse goes on below him. And it's, it's 
clearly Alive has been ripped off from the Night Eats the World because Night Eats the World's in 2018. But basically, a young—he's actually Norwegian—but he goes to visit his French ex-French girlfriend while she's having a party. He's obviously he falls asleep in her spare room, and while he's asleep, the zombie apocalypse has happened, and he spends the next few months sort of alone and isolated in this apartment. But he's a musician, and it's really good because it doesn't really. The zombie stuff just happens to be going on outside and really it's a story about what somebody would do in isolation and there's some interesting and new things and the fact he basically goes mad because he's just stuck in this house. And of course that's the... <laughs> being stuck alone in a house is, is, is a movie for the not 2020, 2021, 2022, isn't it? But yeah, it just, it's just good because it, does, it doesn't do anything new with zombies per se, but it does new things with zombie movies and... Yeah, I just really recommend it, and just don't get put off because you think it's a French film because it it is. No, that would if anything that would make me more interested to know it's a French cinema. Well, it's got a French direct. It's French director. It's set in Paris. The lead character, I think, is a Norwegian Arab. Um, but don't worry about any of that. Although it's really nice to see something set in France. But yeah, it's um, it's really interesting and re- and available on the cheap from all sorts of places. I'm pretty certain it's um on Amazon Prime for free, frankly. But yeah, um, that's 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 just a bonus for our French French film show. Our plans, our alternative plans, have already been scuppered <laughs> due to world events at the moment. So <laughs> mm. let's hope so. Let's, uh, let's we may maybe uh, the country we go and hang out in next. Oh, indeed. So. Let's go. Let's go and watch Tatar together. <laughs> Because I tell you what, mate, <laughs> that's right up your alley. <laughs> Sex with cars. I need to watch that. Now you, now I was wondering what you were talking about then, and I remember when you said that, I like knew what it was because um, I loved. Yeah, from the director yes, of Raw. Which, yeah, which I think which I love Raw. Um, I think it was yeah. is a phenomenal movie, and um, you can check that out. What we exactly thought about that in. Uh, our most recent season of uh, Movies and Tea where we looked at kick-ass female directors. And we not only looked at Raw, we looked at uh, films like A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night and XX and Clueless. So we just look at a whole host of just kick-ass uh, female directors over the course of that season. And yeah, Raw was just uh, such a delight. Uh, for a movie that you'd think would be rather icky, it's just it's like all French cinema; they just do weird really well. Yeah, so Titan, no, Titan is is a little more esoteric, I'd say, than more. Well, I saw um, a lot of things that were like appealing yeah. to myself. I saw like, yeah, I, but I, when I watched it, I thought, I, I know <laughs> it is an art house film, mate. But I thought it's like, older like there's this. medical braces in this. Yeah, and there's. There's a bit of serial killing. There's a bit of car sex. There's a bit of weird shit with people taking steroids. Um, and it's got it's it's got a relationship with Tetsuo the Iron Man as well in a way. Yeah, you'll you'll love it. I I really do um recommend it, even though it's it'll be the art house movie you love. Exciting! I've got that in jumbo still to watch. So. Wait, that, that's the one about the girl who falls in love with the roller coaster. Uh, a, <laughs> or, yeah, uh, we're a, 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 ride, fairground a fairground ride. ride. It's based on the, the French artist who married the Eiffel Tower. 
And I believe that she was also in love with the Berlin Wall as well. She must be devastated that only exists in little packets now. Um, <laughs> I remember watching that documentary about people who are in love with inanimate objects. And she was like, yeah. I hate that you're so misunderstood. And at the same time, it shows her having sex with the Eiffel Tower, where basically she just straddles one of the beams. And it's like, you're on your nice romantic vacation to like the Eiffel Tower in Paris, you know, wooing your lady or whoever you happen to be have relations with. And then you look over and you've got some artist there straddling the Eiffel Tower. Frotting. Exactly. <laughs> oh, oh. A word that we'll it, never well, forget. There's many things we're never <laughs> going to forget on this uh, this show, and I think when we get on tonight's viewing, it's going to add a few more things to that list. <laughs> right, but I'm done for the I'm done, done for the week or the month or whatever the the episode. But yeah, there was a, there was a lot this month for me, um, and just just have been able to catch up in a lot of films. I haven't I haven't even dented the watch pile, but. I feel I've got a couple of films off it, and they've been really good. Nice. Should we move on? Okay. Let's let, let's go to tonight's feature presentation. <laughs> So tonight's featured presentation is 2016 South Korean erotic psychological thriller The Handmaiden, directed by Park Chan-wook and based on the novel Fingersmith by Sarah Waters who is probably best known for writing the novel Tipping the Velvet a tale of Victorian lesbianism Yeah, oh to be fair I think she saw the script and said can you say inspired by because it, it's very very good <laughs> very very loosely adaptation yeah. of fingersmith and so but yeah okay um fingersmith i believe did have a british adaptation as well it did TV, yeah TV which is series Brit- B- a bbc probably on drive. the back of you know tipping the velvet making mega money mm. off the uh it did indeed off uh certain markets um, but no, this obviously changes the same from Victoria, England, Britain to Korea under Japanese colonial rule, in particular the 1930s. Um, the film itself, though, it follows uh, Suk Lee or Suki. Um, Suki, who's hired. I are was you asking, asking you, but apparently it's going to lead me yeah, to dry out Suki. here. So. Yeah, Suki. Um, Interesting though, they're credited. I mean, I know you're going to get into the plot, but the film's title is yes. The Handmaiden, but actually, the Korean name for it is Agassi, which is Lady. So, Kim Min Hee is actually known in, in, in the credits as Lady, and Kim Tyree, who is Suki, is known as Maid. So, we could just call them Lady, Maid, and Count, and Uncle. And not worry about slipping over all the names, <laughs> because I think you know, for some reason the um, the end credits give us this. But yes, um, Suki, you're right. However, you said yeah, that. Suki. Um, well, she's hired to be a handmaid to this Japanese heiress uh, who lives with her 
quirky domineering uncle to say the least we'll get into just how quirky in a minute but basically she's part of a bigger plot as um she's part of this like faginess gang um headed up by this swindler who is posing as a count to seduce the lady so he can steal her fortune however the plot is not as straightforward as it may seem as we find out as the film unrolls over its three parts so this was the first time watching myself a bit of a blind spot in the part Wook filmography as i'd had it sitting on the shelf for like the longest time i got it when it came out and i just for whatever reason never got around to watching it which is really surprising because i actually do really like part Wook's films but for whatever reason this one um i just never got around to watching it until now I was shocked to see it was released in 2016 and that I hadn't watched it for, well, probably five years because I feel like it came out a couple of years ago. And like you, I bought, well, I've got, <laughs> I've got the TV, I've got the Blu-ray and I got the special edition Blu-ray as well, which adds another 25 minutes to it in like its box set. But I had, like, I hadn't watched it since it came out and it's a, and then I thought, what's Pang? Park Chan been doing and to find out he's got a new film coming up very soon but yes success really makes you slow down well he was the executive (laughs) producer he was the producer on Snowpiercer yes on the TV show and um, that What Lies Beneath film that I mentioned earlier he has his exec produced but you know he he's not the sort of director who just puts a film out every couple of years anymore. It's now an event. He is an event director, and I think Bong Juno is also mm. going that direction as well. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, I mean, this film obviously won it won um, best film not in the English language, which is a really ironic <laughs> title to give you award for best foreign film. Um, yeah, at the seventy first British Academy Film Awards. I thought this was a more recent thing. Re- uh, change in title from like best foreign film, but apparently it's all, it's been best film not in the English language for quite a while. It has, but at the BAFTAs, that's because of they want to promote things like Welsh language cinema. Oh God, we're so, rushing out to watch that. <laughs> well, there isn't a lot, of it, but you get you know you have Gaelic language cinema, Welsh language cinema. So I think that's where that came from. But the 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 Oscars have adopted it, haven't they? So, but then again, with the Oscars, it took forever to get like best animated feature, didn't it? So, it did. Yeah, it's it's hard to work in the. Well, there there are there are if you're really interested in that, there are award ceremonies for those kind of cinema. I just you know you either, but I do think you either have it or you don't, and marginalising it is terrible. What I will say is I've seen the Oscar things, and I've only seen one of the films that's been nominated, so I have no interest in Oscars whatsoever. It's just trash this year. <laughs> I mean. What, Godzilla vs. Kong, no nod for special effects. Yeah, the only film I've seen is Don't Look Up, and I feel I'm the only person who didn't like. Oh, that, I liked so. it. It's been it's a real Marmite viewing, mm. um, but yeah, Annette, no nod there for Simon uh, Miller. No, I, th- I think I was expecting that because I think that a lot of people just didn't get um, that at all. Which yeah. is a shame because I've been on a bit of a binge with the director's filmography. I watched Annette mm. and I watched Holy Motors, and it's like. This is wonderful. This is like it, it reminds you of like why you why you love cinema, and I think 
not to obviously spoil uh, what I thought of this one, but um, The Handmaiden was another one of those experiences. This is absolutely sumptuous filmmaking, as we've come to expect from Park Chan-wook. Is... I mean, yeah, pa- Park Chan-wook is... I, d- I don't know if it's the crew he has around them, but you know, we, we, we see a lot of Korean films, and they all look great. And then there's Park Chan-wook films that look fucking amazing. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a scene... You know, it's sort of, I guess it's set in spring or something like that in the garden, and there's there's a there's a sakura blossom tree surround in the middle of two normal green trees, yeah. So the pink, and it it could be a postcard or a painting. It just looks so sumptuous. It the 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 set dressings, the wallpaper, the furniture, everything is just gorgeous. I mean, I've I've always thought this about you know his 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 style and the way he puts the camera and even things like old boy you know where they have that the scene which is like a computer game bell yeah. beat them up the hallway sequence was copied by De- the hallway sequence <clears throat> it's just brilliant it's just brilliantly filmed you know as an action sequence it's got issues but as just a that's a different way of looking at it and there's yeah apart from one moment in this film it's gorgeous and brilliant and that's exactly what i want from my park chan wook movies because his eye is just superb. oh definitely so and i think you're gonna see as we've come to expect from park chan wook you get to see some very horrible acts shot in a very mm. beautiful way um and this i mean right from the start here obviously when we look at um it's hard to say anyone sort of like the heroine here because it constantly changes perspective as the film goes on but Suki basically is part of this this little gang who adopt um, abandoned Korean babies to sell to rich Japanese couples so Mm. they're running this uh, makeshift orphanage Um, and at the same time they've got they're running this bigger scheme with this uh, swindler who's planning to steal this inheritance as we mentioned already and with um, Suk, right. Well, so, so, so we're not going to talk about this without spoilers. This is a six-year-old film. <laughs> I think if we can, I'm, I'm personally not going to hold back if we're going to give anything away, mate. I don't know about you, because I just think it's going to be impossible to talk around the second two hours of the film if we don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, obviously, with with Suki, uh, she's was sent to her to go and pose as this handmaiden and help her Hidiko who's uh, this uh, young lady living with her uncle um, who as I said he's a bit of a, a scumbag to begin with because he helped the Japanese take over his country in exchange for a gold mine at the same time he has an obsession with rare books in particular rare pornography and he holds dramatic readings of said pornography, which he teaches uh, Hideko how to read and to put on these performances where him and his other wealthy socialite friends basically sit around and smoke pipes and watch her give these dramatic readings while she's uh, dressed in very traditional sort of Japanese garb. It's almost geisha-esque, she's there in the Komodo, and she's got the sort of geisha-esque hair. And uh, he teaches her to to read these these pornographic uh, novels in the way that in a very dramatic sort of fashion at the same time using 
aggression and violence to sort of keep her in line. Torture is the word you're after. Yeah, and he also <laughs> threatens to send her down to the basement. And we're never sure what exactly is in the basement till the very end of this movie. Um, mm. I mean, I didn't know I wanted an octopus in a uh, glass in a um, in a tank until I saw the until I saw this movie. That's a big old octopus. Only well, part time Wook <laughs> can shoot an octopus the way that this movie does. Yeah, well, I mean, he has shot an octopus before well, it when a, it was going down. A squid, and, wasn't and it? Matey boy's gullet. No, no, he shot a full on octopus, an old boy. It's just that was just an edible octopus. This is a fucking giant thing, and it, and it's oh, I, octopuses. I just like spiders. Anything with too many legs really freaks me out. But octopuses in particular do. And when you learn that octopuses are potentially the second cleverest, smartest, brightest creature on this earth after the human yeah. race, um, it's oh, it does, I, I, don't, I don't even understand how they exist. Do you know what I mean? Well, the fact <laughs> is you obviously got eight eight arms, which have, um, which is mm-hmm. nightmarish enough. Then it's got a parrot beak in the middle of it. Yeah, it's oh yeah. my god, it's just nightmare fuel. It's like when you look at and, a crab and, and, mouth. That's another yeah. nightmare fuel right there. How a crab eats things. Yeah, but and 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 the octopus is always. I know most of them can change color, and they can also. I, I was watching a thing. Someone was. Um, I was watching a show where people were, you know, um, you know, scientifically investigating yeah. them, and. They can basically get out of however big the octopus is, it can make itself small enough to get out of any hole. And they found that this octopus was not only getting out of its water tank every night, it was then going back in again <laughs> and doing stuff because they can live outside water for yes. a period of time. Yeah, so it was basically making itself tiny, going and getting food or something, and then getting back in its water in, into its aquarium. And it wasn't until they put a film on it, you know, a camera on it, that they worked out what it was doing. They are astonishing creatures. You know, we talk about all, you know, the apes are as, you know, nearly as clever as us, or, the, or dolphins is the other one, isn't it, that people often talk about. No, octopuses are astonishing, but they are freaky. And like you said about the beak, they, some of those big octopuses, they can bite your hand off. No. It's just, oh my God. My dad oh. used to work with octopi. Yes. My dad, because he was worked in marine did biology, he? Why? and um, oh, okay. he did some work at the uh, the Blue Reef Aquarium. Yeah, yeah, important. And yeah, uh, where yeah. he was down in Newquay. Okay, yeah. And um, basically, if the octopus got out, you basically you have to charge it with a, a shovel. Yeah. So it raises its arms up to cover its head, and then you scoop yeah. under it, and then you throw it back in the tank. Yeah. And unfortunately, there'd be days where it would get hold of the shovel and then hit him, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah astonishing and yes and to see it yeah parked and it's just so organic and both gross and beautiful at the same mm. time it's amazing thankfully the octopus doesn't get out of its tank in this movie but we see some pornography which suggests why the octopus is there yeah um I can see the bit that really struck you as the octopus porn. <laughs> I just—it's sort of like you—you you see the octopus. And again, when we say porn in this, this is all—it's uh, erotic, erotic let, drawings. Let, 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 yeah, this is not so. The books that she's reading, I think, are quite famous Chinese and Japanese 
erotic stories if we were aware of it we'd probably say oh that's a good one to choose but i did do some reading up on it and you know this some reading up i assume well wikipedia but yeah i i I don't unfortunately i can't read chinese so i can't read these books but the paint there's paintings around the place and the books are not things that parker's made up as you would expect yeah that he's done his due diligence on this and so i think there's a layer although this is this is only a tiny bit of the film (laughs) it is a tiny bit but yeah he's um the uncle his the whole thing is that he just collects rare pornography Mm. and these wonderful like leather bound tomes that Mm. he's got this huge library of and uh his favorite thing is to obviously get the lady to do these uh do these dramatic readings and at the same time, uh, when Suk, uh, when the maid, I'm just yeah. going to give that's, up I on this you. now. So was, I told you, maid, lady, count, uncle, bang. So go. when she's uh, introduced, that uh, the pair develop a kind of a, a bit of a romantic connection, and they plot to to run away, and at the same time, she's trying to stay on on track with this whole scheme. So she's trying to encourage her. Um, the lady that she needs to marry the count, uh, which doesn't end well. She doesn't. The lady does not take this well and um, has a bit of a falling out with the maid, um, only to then double cross the maid and have her put into an insane asylum, saying that yeah. uh, she's the lady, so, not the maid. Yeah. So this is a film of whiplash switches, and the first part. Is this story of, of like you say, um, Suki, the maid, going here, and and we learn in flashback during the first part that she's part of this gang and that she's in league with the count, and this is all a big con to get the count to marry the lady and get all her money. And but yeah, and but the maid and the lady kind of fall in love with each other, and then there's this big twist where they basically drop, they go to the um. They go to the well, like, insane asylum, I suppose, isn't it? Hmm. And this is the this is like one of the this is the thing I remember most from the film, other than the octopus. The first time I watched it is, yes, yes, you're going to the insane asylum now, da 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 da. And then and then the count and the lady walk away, and they've told the, the administrators that the maid is the lady and she needs to be locked up. And it's just, it's just a lovely twist. And then you realise you're only at the end of part one of the film. Oh yeah. And there's and there's and there's even more twists to come. You know, we we're still not we've we've had the big twist, but we haven't had all the twists yet. And the film constantly goes back on itself to show you I mean, even the opening scene, if I remember the opening scene of the film is you see Suki and her family and it it looks like she's like a single mother who's had to give up her baby and stuff like that, isn't it? But it then turns out we find out actually what's going on and that the relationships between these characters isn't quite as you think it is and people are on different people's sides and stuff has happened off camera or behind paper screen mm. that will... And sometimes that annoys me on a film. You know, like when it goes back and says, Haha, you know that thing that you thought happened, it didn't. Yeah. Whereas I feel with this one, there are a million twists to it, but when you go back and find out the truth... I don't feel cheated. 
No, I it feel... really plays around with the unreliable narrator, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and at the centre we have this wonderful transition, really, because obviously we start off in the slums, and when we go, when she obviously goes off to work for the lady, and um, she's been driven like the the town car, and they get to this big gate. And he's like, oh, you might as well just go back to sleep. We're still going to be like another 10 minutes away. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you realise that this gate, there's still miles of property that they got to drive through to get to the house. Um, and this, we're now in, when we get to part two, we're now flashing back and we see the lady when she was like, just like five years old. And she's first brought to the uncle's house. And she's going through this like training by the aunt. Um, to sort of like read read these books and at the same time the uncle's like psychological and physically abusing her um, and he keeps like the ants pretty much locked in this house he's got all these different switches in the house which stop her escaping so his house is like a fortress and there's these bizarrely engaging sequences where the ant is like teaching her like the Japanese words for like penis and vulva and vagina and stuff and like do you see her like reading these these very graphic novels which is like they're like like picture books like you're learning to read picture books and she's like has to go through and say what all the words mean um before she eventually hangs herself and uh you you find out that the uncle has like uh been torturing her in the basement so we get all more hints of like what's in the basement but you have to wait to the end of the movie to find out what's in the basement. Although we've opened with it, but yeah. I know. <laughs> we have not even talked and... about, we've just hinted about one element of the basement. True, true, true. It's from here we obviously find out, we're basically finding out more about the lady's side and that she's not all sweet and innocent as we thought she was in the first part, so she was kind of a bitch. As <laughs> uh, we're told by uh, the maid's narration. As we see this young five-year-old just go around slapping, like uh, the staff, and just being a, a real pain in the ass. So, yeah, uh, and we find out basically her part in in this scheme with the count, um, and at the same time, th- the same time that uh, these other parts of the this scheme that have been been hanging around, and more about the, her relationship with the maid and. It's it's amazing the fact that we can like go back and like essentially see the same thing, but from a different angle, and it means something completely different as well. Um, yeah. But but like but like I said, I never felt I never felt cheated. I never felt the filmmaker was like was trying something. Oh, hang on, that can't be how it happened. You know, sometimes when you get these flashbacks, you think, oh, hold on a minute, you like you talked about the unreliable narrator. It's it's not quite that because. It's more like an onion that's being peeled. You know, you, there's a scene. So, um, lady and count have their wedding night, and you think, and then the maid comes in and sees on the bed some blood. So you think he's taken her virginity or something like yeah. that, yeah. And it's only later that we find out, no, she is a bit of a bitch, and he made she made him sit there while she masturbated and then cut herself to give the impression that she had had sex. You know, and. It just puts a different viewpoint on every character involved, but it still doesn't mean the original scene 
isn't right. It's just so clever. It's just so, so clever. And actually, mate, the second watch, I was far more appreciative of it. I have to say, the first time I watched it, I wasn't entirely in love with this film. Um, I enjoyed it up to the to end of part one, and then I felt I just got, I just, I don't know, I, I, I maybe struggled to follow it. But this time, even though I watched the extended edition, which has somehow crammed another 25 minutes in, although not with really adding any scenes, just scenes are just a bit longer. Yeah. It's just such a well-made film. It's such a great twisty-turny plot with requisite amounts of horror and sex and nudity and all those things which are really usually part of like b cinema and exploitation cinema but this is a really classy film i don't i just yeah i'm i'm surprised how much i liked it but the, the, those, those twisty turny things the seeing the scenes from different people's viewpoints is just so well done well we would when it came to obviously the sex scenes, I mean that was one of the big talking points of the film. I mean, obviously Laura Miller over the slate described them as disappointingly boilerplate and featuring mm. the visual cliches of pornographic lesbianisms. Um, now, obviously, neither of us being a woman or a lesbian, um, I can't say we really have a horse in this race in how <laughs> lesbianism is like depicted in this film. And unfortunately, I've not been able to get a copy of this film to any of my lesbian friends to ask them what they think but I'm sure knowing them they probably would have given this two thumbs up <laughs> I I, yeah and we also have to remember context Korean films don't have much nudity in them mm. let alone women 69ing and scissoring um and it's all very beautifully photographed. Oh, it's definitely not... so. And she's like, the way that this is presented, it's sort of like the maids being asked by the ladies sort of like to be made love to, like the Count will. So it's sort of like, what starts as this like preparation thing, like quickly, <laughs> and I didn't mean quickly, um, descends into something a lot more interesting. Um, and, and, and and not just that, not just is that there's the, the sort of that visual representation of, people having sex fine but there's like erotic so there's the bit where the lady is in the bathtub and she's being attended to by by the maid you know she's putting lots of lotions and potions in the water and there's oh i've cut the inside of my mouth i've got a crooked tooth or something and the maid goes and gets a thimble <clears throat> puts her thumb with the thimble in the lady's mouth and sort of starts grinding down the the snaggle tooth is that what it's called yeah, yeah, I think that's what I think. And and but there's just there's just this charged eroticism of that moment. One of them's naked, one of them's clothed, one of them's got her fingers in the other one's mouth. Um there's looks between this is before they've even embraced their feelings for each other and there's this this wonderful tension. and I love that moment and it but it keeps going on and on and on and, and we even flash back to it later and see it from a slightly different viewpoint as well. The same scene, just when you show people's faces and not just their hands and mouths, you see different emotions that are going on. And it's just that I think is excellent. I, I seeing I know, I'm fifty years old, mate, I've seen enough boobies in my time. Um <laughs> I, I, I'm not really I'm not there for I, I don't that that doesn't do it for me. Other things do. The one misstep though is I don't think the point of view cunnilingus works. I think that took me out of the movie when that happened. 
you know where the where where there's you know your your allegedly lady's vagina and you're about to be licked by the net maid i just thought that was naff <laughs> and that's i just just don't think it worked okay in, in, in within this film um, it's so classy and then <clears throat> and then that happens <laughs> I think uh, my other favorite quote in regards to these scenes came from the New Yorker's Jay Tolentil, who um, basically said that Parker is deft at extracting the particular sense of silly freedom that can be found in enacting a sexual cliche. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very... It's designed to be visually titillating, these sequences are. I'm not saying that it's designed with any sort of sense of realism and it's obviously very easy to compare it to like the lipstick lesbianism of pornography um, but at the same time it works within the context of the story but like yourself Stephen I found that while these scenes are certainly eye-opening um, they're not like the strongest scenes of the film even though they're obviously the key to the the plot and I don't think they're overused as would you were sort of expected going into this where sort of like the main focus of this being like oh it's like originally when this and Tip of the Velvet came out it's like oh Victorian lesbians um, mm. and you've got to remember this is before like uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire this mm. recent boom of costume uh, eroticism and, and this, that's uh, happening at the moment this is a Korean film which nakedness even even like quite average Toplessness, you know, in in, in non-erotic sense, is is really frowned upon. If you go back to some of those, um, how many of those dark television cinema stuff that I did involved some poor actress killing herself because she felt she'd shamed herself by showing too much skin on a television yeah. show or a movie, and this is, it, it's happening, it's it's still happening, and so for both Kim Min Hee, who plays Lady, who is a majorly renowned actress in Korea although there's a some funniness around her that she was absolutely shit when she started but she's worked really hard in reinventing herself and now she's hated by everybody because she's an adulteress with um, Hong Hang Sang So but doesn't matter is that his name? The director anyway and then we've got Kim Tae who plays the maid this is her first film role and she's leading a Park Chan Wook film and being asked to be naked and being asked to simulate sex with a woman who's her hero this is groundbreaking stuff i would say and just because it doesn't meet some critics view who've seen a million erotic films and all right it's just a bit boilerplate you've got to put it in context this is a korean movie with people yeah, who won't do this we said that though but i mean Patrick and Wook's films have always featured that element of sex in them i mean look at sympathy for mr vengeance it has the sign language sex sequence mm. we got the really questionable sex scene in oh boy yeah, um, no, let's not let's not talk about that yeah but norm- normally his sex hasn't been of a yeah this is very blatant and this is yeah, I don't want to pretend we're in Victorian times, but I do think lesbianism is still a t- will still be a huge taboo in Korea. Yeah, the, the, the homosexuality in all its forms will be incredibly taboo. But I just do think I just I haven't seen many films. I mean, obviously, these are incredibly good-looking lesbians. That you mentioned the lipstick lesbian thing, didn't you? That yeah, I think that's always yeah. going to be 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 the thing because i mean obviously hollywood mm. as a whole doesn't really like to show butch 
lesbians just to put it in the most bluntest terms possible we like to they like to keep that sort of lipstick lesbian idea of what you know lesbians are unless we're obviously looking like new queer cinema or the lgbt uh just lgbt cinema in in general but then again it's designed with that particular audience in mind um it's not designed for like titillating straight audiences um, but with the handmaiden but- i mean it is but again, it's not a Japanese film. This is a Korean film. You, I'll challenge you to find five other films with lesbians in. Yeah, it's it's this is this is groundbreaking stuff. But I take the criticisms that it's you know it's it's not. Do you remember we watched a new erotic? That was it, the erotic ghost story. Yes. And we had our, you know, and that was what thirty years prior to this. No. Yes, probably. Um, and I was quite shocked about what they showed on the Japanese actress. It's <laughs> quite a, quite a lot. Of, nothing like that in this film. It's 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 boobs and suggestion, and artfully filmed legs and arms in the way, and furniture in the way. But okay. Anyway, maybe we should move on from the sex. Yeah. Um, certainly, when we talk about the more interesting aspects of this film, I think the scene where you've got the socialites watching the lady read uh, read the novels. I mean, obviously, we've got you mentioned already the two novels that uh, that she reads from here. We've got um, the dream of the the dream of the fisherman's wife, which is the one with the octopus, uh, which is by uh, Katsuki Hokusai. Um, then we obviously got uh, the plum in the golden vase, which is the one that she reads with her aunt. Are you just pulling them off your shelf of erotica? Yeah, this is, this is my <laughs> own my own shelf here. It's, they're bound in human skin. I've had some. I would. I only just found out this week. There's a lamp made of human skin in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Really? Yeah, in the scene, the dinner table sequence. Oh she, no, no, I know, I knew there was. I'm surprised you didn't. I never know. looked up. I'm too focused <laughs> on what's happening around the table. I never looked up. Um, but then again, in Bad Boys in the club sequence, today I only found out that when you look up in the club, there's bodies wrapped in plastic hanging from the ceiling. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. It's just been a been a week. It's been a, it's been a relative. A, a relative Tory and week, is that when right? this obviously comes out, I mean, you're obviously going to find us in the midst of our Anthony Wong month, so it's just revelations all over the cast. Uh, but yeah, those sequences in particular, they were just really fascinating to watch, just like, you know, wealthy, wealthy, like, uh, socialites just smoking pipes and listening to erotica. And the fact yeah, the uncle's so there was like, like a, black tongue and it's like ah yeah there's so many like good stuff high class stag movie isn't it but... it is <laughs> it's it kind of reminded me of like um eight millimeter mm. uh the fact where you've got the wealthy socialite who's sort of like paid to have a snuff movie made just because he can and it's like you get the same sort of feeling it's just these people who are like doing these things because they're so high they're in society and they're rich and, that they can do this I mean he, and they're bored possibly so um, mm. and the fact he's like got this like envious library of uh, pornography that we get to see that sequence where they'll like destroy it as this mm. uh, 
this wonderful scene of them breaking free of uh, the reign of the uncle. So, yeah. Um. And but then again, you know, remember, reading was not the privilege of the poor. You know, literacy was king. So these books exist. They were written. They were probably designed to be read out loud. I assume back in the day, back in the early centuries, they probably were read out loud. And this probably isn't that far-fetched an occurrence. I mean, I think there's a lot of far-fetchedness in the film, but you know what I mean? I'm I'm sure someone did read them out in semi-public places because most people couldn't read. Any, anyway, yes. This, move on. There's a really <laughs> random piece of trivia here that uh, mm. says that during the film, and due to the summer heat, Kim Trey Ray always bought a big bottle of beverage, either coffee, tea, or mineral water. She shared this drink with a fellow actress, Kim Mi Hee, using the same straw she's using. Kim Min Hee said to Arang TV showbiz career interview that uh, Kim Tae Ray just placed a straw in her mouth. Why do we need to know that this is worse than the Battle Royale Wikipedia? <laughs> there's yeah there's a there's a lot of publicity around this film and i think because of the content of it i think there seems to be a lot more than normal of mundane facts like i read a list of them and it was all like oh kim tore didn't really want to do this scene but kim Min he said nice things to her then they got on with it I mean, that seems to happen about 15 times. And so that which is not too far different. So very weird. Very weird. But this is a, this was a big deal. Not just, you know, not just for us Asian cinema film fans who love Park Chan work, but this is a yeah. big film in Korea. So I guess you just get the nonsense. Mm. But um, when it came to obviously shooting the, the scenes, I mean, Park Chan, to his credit, I mean, he only had one female member of cast that told the boom mic. All the other crew members were asked to leave the set. They just, like, closed it completely off. There was no visitors allowed. All the male crew members were given the day off. Um, and they just, like, completely locked out this, uh, oh, and it this was set. F- filmed by remote control cameras as well, wasn't it? So the only person on set was the female boom mic. Everything else was, like you say, all the men were sent home. And the, and the cameras were done by remote control so yeah fair play <laughs> and um he choreographed and discussed all of the sequences while the actress are always fully clothed um and it was basically kim min he who who really sort of led that scene and helped uh, kim tae ray get mm. through the uh, scene by like you know reassuring and, and keeping her sort of energized and he actually shot this stuff early in the production because he thought it was like the most stressful and burdensome of mm scenes of the film which considering what this film has in it is a real interesting way of looking at it but and and did he not also one of he, he got in a female friend of his who was a lesbian to sort of consult on on the sex scenes as well which is why some of it some of that criticism i think is a bit false but as, as i understand it's somebody somebody he is sort of a colleague of his he brought them in to make sure that it was being done tastefully and accurately or yeah. whatever um yeah it, it, and and again just, i can't stress more kim min hee is a big fucking deal to be doing this i can't <laughs> think of an i can't think of another example but her career has somewhat changed a bit because she, she lives in both the blockbuster world and in the independent cinema world so she's probably a little more easy about no she's not easy but she's a little bit more um uh, 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 she'd probably be a 
bit more less resistant there's, there's an awful I, I'm using the wrong words here but she should be less resistant to some of the nudity and stuff like that which is why it would be great that she could then bring the young new actress in into play but it does sound like it's a it was a huge component of the film which to me yes it's there but it's not the bit that makes me excited about the film no no not at all at all i think no. th- i think th- this is also the reason we watch like patron movies because he makes horrible wax look so impressive they're so uh engaging to watch Mm. Through his lens, and I mean, obviously, this is clearly when we look at obviously compare this to Mobius with uh, Kim Gay Duck and the way that he runs his set, and you compare it to yeah. like how Patrick did it, does uh, these things. It's like the worlds apart, and it's you get the real sort of mindset of the director who's obviously doing this and where his focus really sort of lies. And with the film, I mean, it really sort of shows that the focus really is just on this scheme it's all like who's double crossing who whose intentions are are, are the pure ones here because they've all got their own shady sort of intentions it's just who's there the one who's yeah, uh, screwing there, who's the most disgustingly one one here yeah you think you know you think at the beginning oh the maid Suki. oh what a poor innocent girl she's been shafted hang on, hang on. she's a bit more wet Oh right, she's fully. Oh my God, she's. <laughs> you know, like you just go through this routine, and then you think, well, maybe the, the oh lady, you know, she's having a hard life, isn't she? What horrible things have happened to her? Then you find out she's a cowbag, and she's. You know, I'm not even. I, the twist. Some of the twists could have gone either way, depending on something. The counts. The counts are dickhead from beginning to end, and the uncle, obviously, <laughs> no one could love him. But the girls, especially, you just go through so many flips and flops about them and their motivations and whether they're a sympathetic character whether they're a protagonist or an antagonist it's and i guess i have never i've never seen or read fingersmith so i don't know if if that level of um machiavellianness is is in there one assumes it is it feels very booky this one has a happier ending right okay so yeah this has the ultimate happy ending although the irony of two gay women going to china for for a free life as a lesbian couple, hopefully isn't lost in anybody, which because it's the last place in the world you'd get away with that. But yes, um, I mean, yeah, we've we've skipped over loads of the plot because I just I just think we'd be here all night. It's, it's also very difficult so to if we would sit here and like go through every single like plot point of this, it'd become a bit of a confusing mess. Um, and I think it's a film you have to watch to really appreciate it as well. I'd it's one of the few films though i do think you could do a minute a proper minute by minute and actually stick to the film <laughs> every minute there's some there'd be something to look at or talk about or a twist to unfurl it, it's um i'm not saying we're coming soon it, by the way <laughs> handmaiden chapter by chapter <laughs> but, but there are there are a lot of films a minute by minute podcasts are very popular and i understand why they are and i understand why people like them and you've been on a few haven't you and we obviously we did our chapter by chapter thing with yep. on Battle i went Royale. to hang out with the guys but, over at the kira minute um which was fun hmm. but yeah i i think i i think but i think we found even with battle royale sometimes that even in a chapter we were struggling for things to talk about and repeating ourselves this film i don't think i'd have that problem it, it, there's just so much going on for the eyes, for the mind, for the ears. Yeah, for the uh, go, go back to the octopus. You know, the, the you know the, the sound going on here as well. Um, 
and 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 the fact that the only criticism I have, I didn't like one the way one scene was one scene was shot, and I don't like that it was a pop song in the closing credits. They're pretty fucking minor, aren't they? <laughs> it's just it's dense. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm still trying to figure out where I sort of rank this in the Pachamook filmography. Um, definitely, I enjoyed this one, so I would certainly rank this very highly. But at the same time, I think I need to revisit it again to sort of fully appreciate everything mm-hmm. that I watched. I, I, I definitely enjoyed it more the second time round. That that was, or maybe it's third time round. But the the repeat viewing, when I'm aware of what the twists and turns are, then I can spend time enjoying. Everything yeah, else I mean, it's just so sumptuous when you look at this this film. The filmmaking mm. is just oh, just uh, so nice to to look at, and it's it's the sort of cinema that um, you wish there was more of. Because when we look at a lot, mm. a lot of like cinema that's out there for like the art of cinema, it's often made with just like the award committee in mind. And it doesn't have this sort of engagement. But when you will look at a part-time Wook movie, and there's a number of other directors as well that we've we've covered, they just clearly filmmakers. And I think the same can also be said for Bong Joon Ho. They're filmmakers who are making films f- for themselves. This is their vision, and it's less about oh, we, if we do this, then we can like carry favor with the awards committee. And it's undeniably just such a a Bong Joon Ho. Uh, sorry. Apart from Wook Vision, that we're watching it, it's mm. just obviously this time rather than revenge. It's uh, it's nineteen thirties career. Yeah, and I mean that's another thing that there are when we when we watch films, there are two time periods I love. I love interwar Shanghai, and I love Japanese. No, I don't love what went on, but you know, I I love the visual style of this sort of nineteen thirties. <laughs> Japanese um, occupied Korea as well. There's this real mix of cultures. Um, I mean, there's another thing this film does. It, it does the subtitles because people are obviously speaking in Japanese and Korean, depending on who they are and who they're talking to. And he's gone through. There's a, there's enough quality here to say the subtitles are in different colours depending on what language someone is speaking. That's just an element of care <coughs> that most you know most we've watched a lot of subtitled films, right? And we've watched a lot of films where people are talking different languages. I've never seen that done before, and it's just so obvious. I, I, I don't think anyone, you know, obviously need to be able to see the subtitles, but yeah, brilliant, brilliant. And 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 you've got people, Korean actresses speaking perfect Japanese as well. People on this film learn another language, or maybe it was a language they maybe learned a little bit at school. But you know what I mean? It, the conversational, it's not. By all accounts, it's not crappy. I was just having a look at Park Chan Wook's films, and we've um, we've we've covered first. Yes, we've covered we? first. Is that the only Park Chan? It Wook is. We were originally we did put up the Vengeance trilogy up for the vote, but uh, everyone wanted to is to look at mm. the Hate trilogy instead. Nothing like ten mm. hours of um, cinema to get through, and it's interesting. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I know because I know you're a big fan of Joint yes. Security Area, which I'm a bit more met about. I know we both love I'm a Cy- Cyborg, but that was a flop. Um, I know I love the first half of Lady Vengeance. I just think that's 
brilliant and beautiful and imaginative and then it just gets so fucking dark <laughs> i can't stand it um and i, I was just trying to th- and and also he's written a couple of films like crush and blush and the truth beneath which i absolutely love which we forget um i'm still a big fan of old boy i know a lot of people think that's a bit played out and that's just a bit of an easy answer but i think this is i think this is upper echelons of his stuff but i don't think there's a film of his i detest no, um, I'm, I'm not the. Oh, and he also did Stoker, didn't he? Yeah, funnily enough, that's on my um, that's on my pile. You've not seen Stoker right yet. as we record. I've watched the first oh, ten minutes of it. Wonderful, wonderful film. Um, I, so, so yeah, it's on my. It's, it's literally staring at me now. It's to watch pile. If you enjoyed this one, though, I would recommend also checking out um, Ang Lee's Last Caution. Which, um, interestingly enough, was my um, movie of the year a couple of years back. And Handmaiden is currently my movie of the year for this year. It is. Really? I was one. I was. I, I knew you would like it. Um, but that is far higher praise than I was expecting. And now you feel bad for it sitting on your shelf all that time, right? I think it needed for the moment to be right there for me to appreciate it. Um, this is not a film I could watch when there's like the chaos and racket going on that happens in my house. I mean, this is a film that I actually woke up like early one morning and just sat down and, and watched because I had a couple of attempts to try and watch it and I fell asleep in the evening. So I was like, no, I'm going to get up early, make a cup of coffee, and I'm going to sit and watch The uh, Handmaiden. And I was just lost in the uh, 1930s psychodrama. The whole thing. Yeah. No, it's. um, And like I say, when I first watched it, I don't think I was blown away by it. And the good news for you is the second and third watches will be even more rewarding, okay. I think. There's, there's 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 a lot going on there. And one of the criticisms of Park Chan-wook in the past is that he has been very much a visual director. And there ain't a lot going on behind the scenes. Yes, there's sort of gross plots and things like that, but there isn't much else going on. This, you can't say that about this film. This film has got style and acting and twists it's got plots and it's got yeah it's fabulous and if there was a way to have another film inside this world that we followed one of the other you know the the gang the 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 um what's her name's gang in another adventure with the count that was obviously had to be a prequel, <laughs> but uh, um, oh, oh, let's follow the lady and the maid in 1930 Shanghai, uh, getting involved in another caper. I do, I'd so be up for that. I know that's not really that kind of book and story, and that's not really how Park Chan works. But I love, I loved, I loved this film, and I loved it way more than I expected to. I was a bit when you mentioned it, I was thinking. Oh. Yeah, it's all right, but but no, I loved it as well. So, two thumbs up from us, I think. <laughs> Maybe we did like thumbs up. It just reminds me of that since quite it's like nine thumbs up. What the hell is that supposed to mean? Um, yes, but... so it's interesting. As well. <coughs> Obviously, like a couple of years back, I had lost caution because um, every year I do the mm. film discoveries rather than just like my 
top 50 of the year, whatever. It's always like whatever I mm. discovered that year. So, like Lost Caution, and then last year was Jojo Rabbit, and this year it is uh, currently The Handmaiden. But we are obviously only in February as of recording this, so who knows? Maybe Anthony Wong month yeah. will show us something amazing. Yeah, maybe. And you, um, I was going to say, it's def- it's definitely a contender for our top hundred. Like when we get to episode, that is true. Right? We're going to be obviously <laughs> adding another fifty to the the list, taking us up to two hundred. Um, mm. which is going to be interesting to obviously see what makes the list this time around because there's obviously been a couple of films this year already I mean we obviously had Beyond the Infinite 2 Minutes that we watched, we've got The Handmaiden um, I also recently saw the documentary Gear, Go- Gear Girls um, about uh, Japanese lady wrestlers so there's always everything to play for in this it's, <laughs> when I look at my current top 10 it's a wild list and I know that it's at any moment like as we get further into the year, some films may not resonate as strong as they did at the start of the year. So, just because it's number one now, will it be number one at the end of the year? I'm really interested to see what's going to knock it off. Yeah, and if even if it's not, mate, it'll, one of us will bring it into that 200. Oh, I think sure. it's, this is a film that's definitely going into it's, it's the a, 200. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a shoe in um, yeah. And then yeah. we will work on doing our chapter-by-chapter breakdown. Um, <laughs> because we're already, we're already like the the black sheep over there with our battle royale. Everyone else is sort of like, let's do cannibals and let's do um, let's do like uh, like Silverado or Big Lebowski, like oh, these like movies, and then we like rolled in like with let's do battle royale. Yeah, I I like what Nate did with. Oh, the time warps, yeah. Yeah, I think time that to rewind makes sense for splitting is, it up. We keep forgetting to promote it, but yeah, Time to Rewind. Mm. It's available now where all good podcasts are found. And But it just makes sense. That that just makes sense to split it up. A lot of it, I'm... I know, I know, I know. I don't want to get us blacklisted from any Facebook I don't groups. Think but it's going to happen. Don't get, I, 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 don't get, I don't get minute by minute podcasts at all, but... If I was going to do it, at least this one would have something to talk it about. It was obviously the advantage of us doing the Battle Royale podcast chat by chat because it's like five minutes or something. And mm. having done the minute by minute with um, the guys over at the Akira Minutes, it's there's certain films it works well for where there's a lot of detail in like a minute to talk about, yeah. and then there's other films where it doesn't. And um, certainly I'm doing a chat by chat breakdown of Labyrinth for the minute, and there is a chapter. At the start, where we had to like blend two together because it's basically otherwise it's just like Sarah walking down a hallway, <laughs> and you got to find twenty five minutes of material out of that. Mm, yeah, hard, so. hard, hard. But uh, yeah, unless you've got anything else to, I don't think I'm just gonna. We're just gonna keep gushing about it, and it's been. I think it's been a while since we've both seriously gushed over a film. I think we've liked lots of films, but. Yeah, this this is this is the best film that we've covered for me for a I'm while. Just, yeah, I mean, I'm looking back over the the list and just like the last film that we got really excited about, Helter Skelter, maybe. Yeah, and and even then, with with some yeah. reservations. Um, and, and then going back even further, I want to say it's probably Millennium Actress. 
but that's way yeah. back on like 59 yeah, films, so yeah i mean we've both really liked films mm, definitely don't get me wrong but i think we've also i think we've struggled you know things like um beyond the infinite two minutes we both understood the craft but i don't think either of us thought this was world changing which was the impression yeah. people were giving us um yeah, but probably for me, this is my favourite film since we saw Dijamin, which is... I don't know why that I love that film so much. But uh, never mind. Yeah, so that's that. You, we've got something on for next month, then. Well, as you listen to this, you're probably no doubt all enjoying <laughs> Anthony Wong Month. Hashtag Anthony Wong Month on Twitter. <laughs> um, if you uh, go onto our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, you'll be able to see our weekly, uh, not weekly, our daily updates as we attempt, well, I attempt to watch 31 Anthony Wong movies in 31 days, uh, following on from our wonderful month that we spent watching Takashi Miike movies so if you look on the feeds you will be able to see the weekly recaps of everything we've been watching there uh, Will we be, are we going to be doing a catch up yes, in the same way the recaps excellent so what we'll find out is as much as I love Anthony Wong I'll only have watched about eight of the films and <laughs> it's true and I'm going to warn in advance that there are going to be some English language ones in there which may raise some criticism from from some people, but no, I see. I think I think that's absolutely right because Anthony Wong is half Welsh, right? He is he, and he has appeared in British movies and TV shows as well. Um, I, I, mean, I don't know what you're picking up, what what films you're going to choose as as we write, but I think he exists outside of that Hong Kong yeah, bubble. We're playing a game called. Let's not tell Mrs. Jones how much we're spending on some of these tapes. <laughs> the big bullet was oh, a little eye-watering. The show. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, it's uh, going to be an exciting month. Obviously, please do let us know uh, for future months what directors, actors, genres uh, we should uh, do for future months because I would like to do more of these. So ideally... I would like to do five, and then it could be like a Thanos with my infinite glove. <laughs> like your infinity gauntlet yeah. to crush all other podcasts. I mean, the good the good news is both from directors. There are lots of directors who have done a lot. Maybe not as no. many as Takashi Miike, but it might not be hard to find someone who's done thirty if you include writing and things like that. Um, but certainly with Hong Kong actors, I mean, some of them seem to put out 30 films a year. This should be... It's, yeah, it's obviously you want <laughs> to try and find, like, directors, actors that have got variety, which is what... Because to do 30 days straight of just the same... Essentially the same movie is why I don't like to do, like, 30 days of Kung Fu movies because I just like seeing the the hotheads then do the training to go and fight the badass like 30 times over and make it a little repetitive but I don't know we're, we're, we'll, we'll have to see what uh, future months hold but certainly March is all about Anthony Wong here on the podcast so hopefully uh, you will join us for that um, and as I said follow us on Facebook Twitter, Instagram uh, use the hashtag Anthony Wong month and you'll be able to uh, see the daily updates on there as well but um yeah, Anthony Wong, the only actor who can make, wear a t-shirt with his own face on and still look cool. <laughs> but, uh, Stephen, it's obviously your turn to pick next. What would you like to look at? 
Well, you know what? I can't follow up that. So I'm going to pick a film you're probably going to hate. No, I don't know if you're going to Oh, it's a great sell, like isn't it? But, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm going to pick up. I'm, I'm, be, I'm picking a classic. I'm going back to Japan. So we're not, don't worry, it's not Taiwan. It's not Terrorizers Part 2. Um, but it's, it's one of these films I've had in my collection for a long time. I know it's available over here. So it's a Japanese film from... I can't remember because my eyes are going 1963, but it looks more like 1953. Um, it's um, Shohei Imamura's The Insect Woman. So it's sort of back to the um, sort of era of Ozu and things like that. Well, we, we enjoyed, didn't we? We enjoyed the Tokyo Story, yes. Tokyo Story was um, yeah. an interesting experience, definitely. Um, so... And so, so, so this is, yeah, this is very much in that ballpark, um, sort of that that early sixties, late fifties, sort of cinema that came out of Japan. But yes, apparently it was really good. I've never seen it. I'm assuming no. you haven't. But it's got a great title. I'm guessing this isn't going to be so. like the B movie promise that its <laughs> title makes it out to be. It's 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 not so that's an that's a that's an anglicized version of the english title i think it's something like um an account of japanese insects is what <laughs> that's, that probably this gives like, you um, more of a view of the art housey <laughs> thing about it it's not art house at all but it's yeah it, it's it's a very important japanese director and just yeah this this let's just give it a go and we might surprise ourselves. One of us will. <laughs> no, I, I keep being mean to you about that, but actually you've liked quite a lot of these older films. And I do remember, I think you probably enjoyed Tokyo Story more than I did. I believe so. <laughs> I was trying to remember what I thought of Tokyo mm. Story. Yeah, I think that no, was I the time quite... then, um, <laughs> when we also drank... Uh, <laughs> Brew dog double punk and forgot it's actually double strength. <laughs> that, that it might have been when you did that. Yeah, that is very true. Anyway, yes, the insect woman, and hopefully yeah. you can find a copy of it. But interspersed with um, lots of Anthony Indeed. Wong goodness. But thank you as always for listening. If you haven't already, please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening to us. Leave us a review, and um, you know, let us know what you think of the show, and let us know when you leave a review because. Uh, we only get to see the reviews for the UK side, so if you leave it in like America or Scandinavia or wherever you happen to be, let us know so we can obviously uh, say thanks to you for leaving a review on our show. But uh, if you want uh, more of the show, you can also check out our full archive episodes at asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com, which also has uh, writings like the Film Vault, we've got the Anime Vault, we've got the Dark Side of Asian Cinema, and we've got the Mixtape on there as well. Uh, plenty of good stuff to check on there as well as our, obviously our complete archive. We've got the Battle Royale podcast archive up there as well. There's just heaps of stuff for you to go and check out there as well. But um, until next time, thank you as always for listening. Thanks to my co-host, Stephen. And we'll be back next time to talk about the insect woman. But until then, good night. Hey! 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 Yoru no sa
ちてもほしがもえておちてもおどりつづけていたいよるなのさむねにささったこいのやいばがもえるおもいをくるわすのさきのうのこいはわすれてきのうのあのこはわすれておどりつづけていたいよるなのさ This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.